Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Are you getting enough CBD each day? Hemp Meds carries the most trusted CBD oil brands like Real Scientific Hemp Oil and Dixie Botanicals to make it easy to add cannabinoids like CBD to your diet. We hold all our hemp oil products to our rigorous triple lab tested standard to ensure that you and your family receive only the highest quality and most reliable CBD products. Hemp Meds is your trusted source for CBD. Visit hempmeds.com to get our premium CBD oil today. Use discount code CBD20 to get 20% off your first order. And now, broadcasting on StarWorldWideNetworks.com, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the cannabis reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. I'm really excited about today's show because we're covering a topic that doesn't get much airplay, but it has potential to shape history. I'll explain that in a minute. If you can remember the start of the dot-com era, the sky was the limit on innovation. The very existence of the World Wide Web was a game-changer. It transformed the way we communicate with one another and opened doors to globalization. It gave us instantaneous access to news a world away. And it gave us voice to issues that never made the evening news. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and other pioneers of that era impacted our world in ways no one could have imagined. The same could be said for the pioneers in the cannabis movement. Like the dot-com movement, the sky is the limit when it comes to innovation. Every day brings a new level of understanding about the plant and its incredible healing properties. New discoveries about the endocannabinoid system are leading to scientific breakthroughs about new strains and molecular extractions that have potential to replace toxic cures and transform the field of medicine. This is an exciting time to be in the cannabis industry, but for some, the rate of progress is cause for concern. As with any new industry, there's bound to be some confusion and resistance. Publishers of newspapers, record albums, and encyclopedias scurried to redefine their business models in the dawn of a new era of free online information. Likewise, the cannabis industry has yet to break barriers of resistance like federal laws and pushback from the pharma medical establishment, and even industry insiders. It's like the Wild West, where innovators have thus far been free to govern themselves and define their own standards. The absence of national standards has potential to cause confusion if and when medical marijuana is legalized nationwide. That's something our guest today is trying to change, and it's the topic of today's show. But before we get started, let's hear from our medical expert, Dr. Brian Donner, who has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. I was happy to hear that you would be addressing this topic of unified standards today. From a medical perspective, it's a critical element that has been missing since the movement began. 
From a research and clinical integration standpoint, we have really only scratched the surface of medical cannabis as a scientific entity. The discovery of the endocannabinoid system could potentially go down in history as one of the most important developments of modern science. One of the most common complaints I hear from medical peers is that there's really no set standards for treatment and testing. Doctors are scientists, and we're trained to fully understand the science that's behind the medicine. We look at indications and can make a determination about treatment plans. We then monitor our patients to determine if adjustments are needed. We are involved and active in our patients' treatment plans and overall well-being. Doctors can diagnose a medical condition that would qualify a patient seeking treatment with cannabis. We can also help them become certified in states that require medical marijuana patients register as such. But beyond that, as many programs stand now, we're typically not heavily involved in the patient's treatment plan. This is partially because we have no authority to prescribe set treatments due to federal licensing and DEA regulations. Patients are then most often left to fend for themselves or rely on sources that are relatively unknown to us as healthcare providers. Another problem is that there is little consistency in medicinal cannabis across state lines. Each state in which medical marijuana is legal has its own rules and regulations regarding extraction, formulations, purity, cultivation methods, and use of chemical pesticides and other growth enhancers. These are just some of the few of the deterrents to acceptance within the medical community. Establishing more universal standards should be a priority among industry participants, and that will mean placing a high priority on education and opening dialogue that transcends state boundaries. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you, Dr. Donner. On that note, let's introduce our guest. Leslie Engelking is the founder and president of FOCUS, the Foundation of Cannabis Unified Standards. Their mission is to protect public health, consumer safety, and safeguard the environment by promoting integrity within the cannabis industry. She was one of only 12 people hand-selected to help guide the development of internationally harmonized cannabis standards in partnership with ASTM, American Society for Testing of Materials, an entity founded in 1898 as the American section of the International Association for Testing Materials. Welcome. I am so happy that you're here. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here as well. You know, for three years, Focus, your organization has been developing uh, unified standards, and I want to hear what you're doing because I understand you've been to Washington, you've been to other states trying to rally some of the uh, entities that are going to be participating in this. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so it, um, Focus was founded in 2014, um, early 2014, and for the last three years, we've had voluntary committee members developing our standards. And it's important to understand volu- uh, voluntary consensus standards because they're different than other standards that are available. So the National Technology and Transfer Act in 2007 actually mandates that the federal government use voluntary consensus standards Um, when writing their regulations to at least consider them, but it goes on to say that they can actually mandate the standards as regulations. So while there's other organizations that have developed standards, none have gone through the process that FOCUS did to create this voluntary consensus process that's acceptable to federal agencies. So are you you dealing with um, people in the industry as well, people who are actually boots on the ground, making product, growing, and that sort of thing to get their input? Absolutely. But a key component of voluntary consensus standards is that there has to be balanced input from all stakeholder groups. So while we have an amazing array of 
experts in cannabis manufacturing, you know, cultivating any of that. We also balance that out with members of the regulatory community, law enforcement, um, scientists, standards experts, quality assurance experts, medical professionals, patients, consumers, um, members of the general public that don't actually have a stake in this industry. So we have to balance all of those so that we're creating something that's not industry-driven. It's made safe by the consensus of all stakeholder groups. Yeah, and and not only just that many stakeholder groups, but also you have to consider in each state the stakeholder groups might have differing uh, standards that they're looking at because of state laws? Does that impact it at all? It's, it's an interesting thing, and it's a really good question, actually, and, and, and we get it a lot. So because the state laws are so different in the United States, we, businesses have a very hard time expanding into other states. In, in a normal, you know, easy-to-understand example, if TJ Fridays had a restaurant in Arizona and they wanted to open one in Vegas, they would take their you know, general manager and their three best employees and send them up to Vegas for a week to train their employees there. You can't do that in this industry right now because literally you have to have a license and the regulations wherever that license is held are different. Mm-hmm. So one of, the, one of the most important things, I think, from an industry perspective about setting unified standards is that you don't have to worry about those regulations. You, now all of your employees can be trained to the standards they can all your SOPs can meet the standards so that you have that ability to go across state lines and not recreate the wheel every time and, right. and so ensure consistency. Yep. You're replicating the same program that you started. Yeah. That's that's fascinating actually. And do you get pushback from anyone? No. <laughs> um, less and less nowadays than I used to three years ago when I first sort of started this discussion about standards. Um, I think there's been a lot of developments, both positive and negative in the industry that have led to an evolution of the understanding of, first of all, the difference between a standard and a regulation, and then second of all, the importance of creating voluntary consensus standards and having something um, to offer on that level. Yeah, and you've decided to make your organization a nonprofit. Tell me why. So our organization is actually twofold. We have the 501c3 federal nonprofit, and then we have a for-profit entity that that serves as the certification body. Um, It it was very important to me to work under a 501c3 to assure that we can collaborate easily with regulatory agencies on the state or federal level, um, as well as work with research institutions for grants and other things to really promote public health and safety in the cannabis space. Um, and to show our independence, there's uh, I, pretty much the strength of focus is because we are this third-party independent organization. We don't take fees for our standards development. We don't. There's no quid pro quo. We are not an industry company. We're not a cannabis company, and we're not a regulatory body. So we're sort of that that non-governmental organization in between the two that allows discussion and fruitful interaction between the industry and regulatory. Yeah, I I would think that having zero conflict of interest that way would be a benefit, and it would benefit all of the stakeholders, you know, and the regulatory agencies as well. For sure. It's it's been a challenge, I would say. Um, This industry is so, at at least in the United States, is so tightly knit. Um, Whether or not there's a bunch of competition and everything else going on, yeah, of course, but everybody knows what's going on and talks about what's going on. And for us to have to distinguish ourselves as this independent third party, we've had to turn down a lot of opportunities to work with 
organizations that are cannabis specific, not in a certification style on the for-profit side, but through the development of the standards and that sort of thing, because we really can't afford to jeopardize, you know, our, the integrity of what we've built and the standards that we've spent so long creating. Right. Well, it's, it's kind of akin to in the pharmaceutical industry when, when they're doing clinical studies, they seem to uh, lose their credibility if they're sponsored by a specific manufacturer Absolutely. I give that example all the time. And, you know, you can have the best study in the world, but if Pfizer sponsored it and they have the drug that's, that fixes that solution, then Then you have people in the gonna, background rolling yeah. their eyes. And that's, we were, and coming from a background in pharmaceuticals, that was obviously something very key on my mind that I thought the 501c3 sort of nicely solved that issue for us. Um, we also spent a lot of time working with an axiologist, which is a values expert, oh. um, to develop our core values for focus so that everyone that works with us understands, you know, who we are, what to do, and they can work outside the box as long as they stay within the values. So um, the axiologist that we use talks about values being the guardrails or the little bumpy things on the side of the road and you hit them and you know you're kind of going off road and so you recreate yourself. That's kind of what it's done for us. So when we've had conversations going one way or the other, we want to work with a group, but it's something doesn't feel right. Those are our values, and, and all we have to do is sort of look back and check, do these meet who we are as an organization? Yeah, so with your background in the pharmaceutical industry, um, and just a little aside here, there's a perception about the pharmaceutical industry, especially for people who are working within the cannabis industry, because you know they can be blamed or not for the fact that you know prohibition has gone on so long, but there are so many drugs that could be replaced ultimately with cannabis. So from a a former pharmaceutical executive, what's your take on that? It's it's an interesting dichotomy because, I mean, we wouldn't be here today without pharmaceuticals, right? Right. I mean, penicillin and and all the other amazing things that have have really solved problems that were, were very threatening to our societies. But at the same time, their reach into federal agencies and lobbying and that sort of thing has has grown much beyond that. Um, Definitely, pharmaceuticals have a a negative connotation or stereotype in in the cannabis space. And I firmly believe there are many applications for cannabis to actually alleviate the use of a pharmaceutical. Um, Does that mean we don't need a pharmaceutical industry? No, it doesn't. Yeah, it means I mean, we, we need to learn need to coexist and that there will always be a place for cannabis, medical or adult use. And there's always going to be the pharmaceutical industry. So we've got to figure out a way as an industry to not feel so threatened by their power and money and to help teach the right people, the researchers, the scientists, the doctor that did the minute on the show earlier that there's a way for us to you know, work in harmony together. Yeah, I would think so. And something else that kind of crossed my mind is with the pharmaceutical industry um, background that you have, and we were talking about the lack of conflict of interest, which is a good thing, you know, in terms of setting standards and stuff like that. The pharmaceutical industry is very well regulated by our FDA and the DEA, but how much self-governance, how much leeway do you think they have compared to what will evolve in the cannabis industry? It brings, my mind kind of goes three different places because at one level you think about, gosh, the cannabis regulations that are being written across this country 
are so specific and they have way bigger, what I guess way narrower um, parameters than regulations for other industries, whether it's alcohol or tobacco or pharmaceuticals. Um, but you look at that and, and part of the reason that is, is because they had voluntary consensus standards to base those regulations on. Mm-hmm. So the federal government, I mean, I give the same example all the time. You take fracking, right? There's not a lot of people out there that think fracking is a really good thing, but they had developed voluntary consensus standards before they started and provided them to the government. So the government has to use those and, and at least consider them in providing their regulations. And because we don't have a consensus standard of one unified set of standards for this industry, we're ending up with all these crazy regulations that are, you know, first of all, ridiculously bad for the environment, which is awful on packaging and labeling, but but also, you know, way overburdensome and cost, not cost-effective to the products. Well, and also oftentimes those regulations are created by people who have no understanding of cannabis and the benefits from a health perspective. And, you know, they still have that leftover stigma, I would think. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically, like here in Arizona, our Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees our cannabis program here, you know, a lot of them are are really not in favor of cannabis. And it, I agree with you. They're not. And I do think that, that that represents a challenge. But to me, just thinking the way I do, I want to go back to the source. And it's like, why are these organizations in charge of this? And why do they feel pressure? And why don't they like this? And you look at how most of the initiatives in this country for cannabis have been past, it's through voter initiative. And within those initiatives, whether it's, you know, marijuana policy project or, or whoever, they mandate a certain time frame for implementation, for rule writing, for this. And then just like you said, there's this state agency. Let's just take Arizona Department of Health Services, right? They are forced to write regulations within 180 days and they have, you know, do 90 days of, of public comments and things like that. If those organizations had not been put in a pressured situation like that and had been given education and training on the benefits beforehand, it's likely that their attitude would be very different. So I, and I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of stigma out there because it's one of the things that we spend a lot of time, you know, trying to write on a daily basis, but there are things as an industry that we have neglected to do because we can't seem to unify. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what kinds of um, common information are you drawing from that's out there like databases and and that sort of thing i don't know that we're drawing from specific databases unless like is, are, you, are there any national databases that you know so far that you've run across we we know of one and actually we're um helping to develop ultimately but i was just curious you know what what kinds of information is being shared across state lines because for instance, a grower who's only licensed in one state is developing his or her own strains of cannabis and creating their own compounds out of it and mutating their plants in their own way. So now all of a sudden you've got one state that has completely different um, inventory, if you will, from another state that's also developing their own. <laughs> I, and you're going to always see differences in inventory from state to state, just like you see differences at grocery stores from, you know, shopping in Arizona versus right. shopping in New England or something like that. There's there's certain things that are more, you know, 
regionally decided. I think the issue becomes in cannabis, especially is we've got all these strain names. And so if you say whatever the name is, blue dream, patients have an expectation of what blue dream is and how that will affect the body. You can't expect it to be the same from cultivator to cultivator if they're not operating under the same standards. Right. And the other problem with that is you can't really expect it to be the same every time you go into the same dispensary because they're not operating under quality management systems and quality well, control. Well, and also they might run out of inventory from one grower and go to another one who supposedly has the... I mean, that's a really interesting point that you raised there. Well, and it's, you know, people ask us all the time. So our standards cover cultivation, retail, extraction, infused products, lab, security, sustainability, and packaging and labeling. Those are the first eight that we developed over the last few years. Um, People asked all the time, why aren't we developing dosing standards? Well, it's really hard to say something's a dose when you're not getting a consistent product every time, right? right? So to us, it was like, okay, we go back to the beginning, we address you know, from the very beginning of the process till the end of the process and make sure that people can do this in a consistent way and a safe way. And then that's when you start looking at dosing and that's when research opens up and becomes so important. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting too, because dosing is one of those things that from patient to patient I've heard is very difficult to, um, to make consistent. Absolutely. But Again, pharmaceutical background coming in mind, right? I mean, I could promote a singular product and the physician will use it on multiple different patients, maybe somebody, you know, elderly, somebody under 18 and somebody in their mid 40s. And each of those patients will get a different response, not just because of their you know, age designation, but also because everybody's body chemistry is different. Right. So when you think about from a physician's perspective, that difference in dosing on that level is not that important. It's the consistency in the product that has to be there. Then they know how to adjust the dosing per patient. Right. It's, it's fascinating when you start getting into it. And it's so much detail, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I was really um, surprised at how many uh, different aspects of this business that you're setting standards for. I mean, who knew that security would be on your agenda? But it, it kind of makes sense. And are you also working with banking regulations and trying to open that? So, yeah, um, I'll kind of go back to this recent development with ASTM, right? They're the, lar- the oldest um, standards development organization in the world. So they are pre-ISO, they're pre-ANSI, um, they are the premier organization. And having them come to the table is something of a dream for me because oh, yeah. really, I mean, what Focus is here to do on every level is legitimize this industry, right? We do not promote legalization. We promote legitimization. We really want to bring this and build a safe and legal and sustainable global cannabis industry. And so to do that, we need voices like ASTM at the table. We need people that work under federal contracts all the time, that work in 70, 80 countries around the world. That's what's going to bring the legitimacy. And so Focus spent you know, three years developing our first eight standards. And we had intentions of starting this year a banking um, slash finance committee, um, advertising and marketing, patient care, research, all these things that are also needed to kind of standardize and give people direction and help in, you know, doing things the right way. Because ASTM has stepped in and taken over this process for us, which is amazing. They're, you know, such a big machine with 
they operate just so efficiently. They will ultimately, the 12 of us that were on that committee that were selected, decide kind of where we're going and what standards will be you know, proposed. But the meeting with ASTM, the open public hearing, is at the end of February on the 28th, and we encourage everyone to participate in that because there's you know six or seven levels of participation within the ASTM um, system. So you don't have to be spending all your time on this. You could actually be on a technical work group just solving one problem. So it, it allows the expansion of the standards so much broader than a small organization like Focus. And could. That, that's taking place in Pennsylvania, right? It is. It's in, just outside of Philly, about 15 minutes in ASTM headquarters on right. February 28th. I'll make a note of that. Actually, I put up the press release oh, cool. on the website so people can go and check it out. But um, one thing that you were talking about with, with respect to education, one thing that I think is going to be so incredibly helpful is with the standards. And, and one reason I'm so excited that you're doing this is because education, which is something we've covered a lot on this show, the lack of education available to doctors, healthcare providers, nurses. There's so many amazing people out there trying to educate others about this. Um, Dr. Donner is one of them. Nurse Heather and, and Nurse Julesy are out there all yep. the time in the field trying to educate nurses. But universities have been really slow to pick this up. And I think it was Nurse Heather the other day I interviewed her. She said that only 13% of universities that offer, offer medical school, you know, training for doctors, have even a mention of cannabis in their syllabus. So you got to understand a little bit about even medical school in general. So I, I come from a background in pain management. Um, I've been certified as a you know pain specialist and all this type of stuff. When you look at the education that a physician receives for pain management in their MD degree, or I'm sure it's the same for DO, it's four hours over the entire time they're in med school. So then you think about, gosh, you know, chronic pain, that's probably the most, you know, prominent condition that cannabis is being used for. And doctors don't even know much about chronic pain, let alone cannabis for right. chronic pain, right? Um, there are some universities that have started to offer coursework, uh, different parts of the country, but, but on a small scale. And I think... Part of the challenge there is, just like you said, there's a lot of people out here providing education and whatnot, but there's not one unified message. Right. And so that's why it's so important for these standards to be developed, I would think, so that there's there's actually a textbook available <laughs> eventually. Exactly. Well, and more than that, too, right? I mean, you think about, you know, we spoke to many, many fire marshals from across the country, and they all say the same thing or, or you know, emergency professionals they're not going to go in and risk their people's lives to save a cultivation that's on fire if they don't understand the risks and have a schematic of the facility beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. They think of cannabis facilities as meth labs because they've not been provided any other education to the contrary. And so one of the things that we've developed is a, a first responder training, whether it's, you know, EMTs, fire, police, and our system that the standards are on and anybody that goes through our certification has the schematic of their facility stored in that. And schematics can be accessed on the fly, in the car, in the fire truck, whatever, by any of those professionals so that you will get help going in and, and investigating or putting a fire out or Whatever. I can imagine for people who don't really understand mm -hmm. what a facility like that is like, they're probably afraid that they'll walk in and, and you know, be so completely well, high from the, the burning 
plants or well, and something. the chemicals right i mean yeah, even even if you're in an organic grow, I mean, you have chemicals in there for cleaning your hands right. or doing all these things that any normal facility not related to cannabis would have. And those are all risk factors for mm-hmm. them. And so they really have to understand that. But again, I think it kind of goes back to your your comment on education, right? Mm-hmm. It, changing the stigma, moving this industry forward is all about providing consistent education in all the right places. Yeah. And the standards are necessary for that. Yep. I think They're oh. definitely the basis of it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me what is next then. You've got this meeting on, on the 28th. I know you're going to be meeting later on today uh, with, with a number of people who are just joining to kind of learn what's happening with the um, ASTM. Yeah, we have a, a committee call, a couple committee calls this week to just update all of our amazing members that have volunteered their time over the last few years, let them know what's going on with ASTM, how they can get involved, and really encourage that involvement um, yeah. so that we can continue to, to, you know, form the basis of these standards right. going forward. Right, and are you inviting more and more industry people into the fold? So we, part of voluntary consensus standards requirements is that it's open to participation with anybody with to anybody that has an interest in participating and a willingness to participate so we've never closed it off um, and ASTM will be able to take that on a much more global scale right so we're not just talking about U.S. I mean if you think of every other country out there I mean anybody that has cannabis legalization whether it's medical or adult use in any country is breaking these guidelines from the World Trade Organization. And, and we need to fix that right now. All of a sudden, they're no longer in compliance with what we call the Compl- uh, Controlled Substances Act. But, I mean, it's basically you know global guidelines. And right. so there has to be some rectifying of that because they can't just operate on a global level with everybody out of compliance, right, and not meeting it. Well, I imagine that they're waiting for the United States to... Uh, deschedule before they start changing some of those international? I don't think so. I I mean, while the U.S. is obviously a huge player in any discussion, um, there's just too many other countries that are moving forward. And there was a meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, in November about opening the discussion. So they basically, they're required to do a scientific review if any new information is available. And they haven't done one since 1936. So that was the opening meeting to say, yes, there's reason for continued discussion and scientific observation and looking into the new data that's out there, which is the first step in, you know, trying to move big ships turn slowly. Right. So um, and then they will now go forward this year and continue that discussion. You know, the American Academy of Sciences and Medicine actually published a study of studies (laughs) If you will, they looked at every single, uh, they had many committees and they looked at every single study that was available uh, pertaining to safety or efficacy of cannabis as a medicine. And they, they produced a report that was only, you know, 20 pages max um, that was, that was just an, um, a listing of all of these different studies that really mm-hmm. pertain to some of the laws that are out there. But I thought that was really interesting, and I wonder, I wonder if they're even, you know, I'm sure it might be on their radar, but if in, you know, for Geneva to be able to look at some of the uh, 
summaries. It's a summary of all the studies. Yep. And showing how much evidence is available on different conditions and different safety measures. And it's sort of and it's so good to have something like that. Just yeah. a list of citations even, you know what I mean? Without it even right. quoting the articles because there's such a misnomer out there that there's no data to right. back up cannabis. And yeah. that actually isn't true. Yeah. There is a lot of good data. And on a scientific level, from a physician standpoint or a scientist standpoint, it doesn't need to come from the U.S. to be valid data. We use data from around the yeah. world to make decisions about medical practices, medical medic, you know, medications, whatever it is. There are other countries that are so far ahead of us in doing this and, and in working with cannabis as a medical treatment. Right. We don't need to recreate the wheel. We don't need to redo all those studies. Well, mainstream might say, well, that's a study from Israel. The reality is Israel's the gold standard on studies. Well, and right they're now. people too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and they're so far ahead of us. Exactly. Anyway, but yeah, it, it's amazing to me. If you go on to pubmeds.gov, you know, clearinghouse for all of these scientific papers, and you type in the word marijuana, 24,000, more than 24,000 studies awesome. come up. Yeah. I mean, it, yep. I think it's amazing. And, and so when you hear people who, you know, are in favor of looking into whether or not um, medical marijuana even should be descheduled, or marijuana in general should be descheduled so that we can do more research. They say, well, we don't have enough research. You're right. It's just crazy. It's a circular argument. Yeah. It's the same thing with, I, I mean, I just think it makes me think about, like, in pharmaceuticals, you know, we're trying to launch a new drug to a physician and we're talking to him about the benefits and the risks and who the right patient is and that. And they're saying, but I don't have any experience with it, so I'm not going to write it. And it's like, but you have to write it to get experience with it. So... How, yeah. how are we going to start this, right? And, and that, that whole circular argument stuff doesn't really, it doesn't do anyone any good. Right. But I, it's huge, and, and I, it all kind of comes back to stigma and all of that. But, like, there's a lot of organizations that won't get involved with this industry. When we, when we launched Focus, we went to um, ANSI, A-N-S-I, so it's the American National Standards Institute, and we paid the fee to develop, you know, standards and become a standards development organization under their guidance. And they wouldn't do it. They have a committee, you know, executive committee, and they were very fearful of, I mean, first of all, they thought that it wasn't legal where they were based, which was New York, and it is. Um, but it, it's just an education stigma thing and that they really weren't, were, weren't willing to do that. Flash forward, here we are three years later, we're in the process of getting accredited from ANAB, which is the American National Accreditation Board, for our certification process, which is will be the only global um, international certified cannabis certification body. But wow. Yeah. It's, you know, what a difference a year makes, right? Gosh, yeah, no kidding. So you mentioned Israel earlier. I'm fascinated by how far along they are and how widely accepted it is in Israel um, from a medical standpoint. How much did you draw from what they've written in terms of their own standards to, um, to guide what's happening here in the U.S.? So if you think of it, this has been a change in my thought process over the last couple of years. If you think of one state being so far ahead, right, whether whatever state you want to call it, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, California, those states are the same size as countries. Right. Israel is a tiny little country. They have eight producers. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to get things done on a state level than a national level here, just like it's much easier to get things done in that country because it's a smaller community. Right. and. 
and change happens easier. Um, we, for, to answer your question specifically about the standards, we used World um, Health Organization guidelines for good manufacturing practices, good agricultural practices, good lab practices, good extraction practices. We then took the code of federal regulations for any pharmaceutical, dietary, nutritional supplement regs. We then took regs from other countries, Mm -hmm. not standards, but like what the Canadian regs are, what the Israel's uh, regs are, that kind of stuff. And that was the basis for starting standards development. We, We compiled it all and separated it into different areas and then... All of those things are not cannabis-specific, right? The Code of Federal Regulations doesn't have cannabis-specific regulations on agriculture or anything. So we took regular, generic, sort of general agriculture regs, and then we had agriculture experts and cannabis experts and everyone else say, how do we make this specific to cannabis? Right. So I'm curious about this because one of your um, core values in focus is protection of the environment. And protecting the health and safety of, of constituents of cannabis, right? Yep. So I'm curious as to whether or not organic practices will be going into the standards um, because it is a medicine and it's grown and all of that. How, how much are you focusing on? organics. Um, forgive the pun. <laughs> no, <laughs> it happens all the time. There's a reason it's called focus. Um, no, so organic, I'm sure you know this, but you, you're not officially able to call something organic at the federal level if it's not federally legal. legal. So organic cannabis is sort of a misnomer at this level. Right. However, but there's still standards that make something organic. There are. And we have our, the focus standards are we don't call them organic for that very reason that we are here to be the go-between between industry and regulation. Right. But they're as organic as you can get. Um, we don't, it, it's all clean. It's all meant to be, you know, we talk about the water and where that comes from and, you know, what kind of, you'll see a lot of states regs that say, you know, here's the list of pesticides you can't use. We didn't do that. We did an approved products list. So here's a list of, you know, 30, 40 things that you can take into any shop if you have a problem in your grow and say, you know, I've got, you know, spidery mildew or I've got mold or, you know, whatever, white flies. And here's what I can use. What do you have that would be best for this? Trying to sort of help the industry move towards that rather Mm -hmm. than going in and saying, I have spidery mildew. What do you use? And this guy's going to tell you, Oh, I'm going to use microbutanol or whatever it is. That's completely toxic. So we're we're trying to preempt that whole process. Let me ask you this because I know we only have about five more minutes or so. What is the one thing that you would like people who are skeptical about the industry? Because, you know, we talk to a lot of those people and if they're not skeptical, they're just very, very um, unsure of, of the industry and what it will bring when it is eventually uh, legalized on a medical or an adult use level. What's, uh, from your perspective, what's the one thing that you most would like them to know about? I think my message would more be to industry on how to help those people. Um, I didn't know anything about cannabis when I was asked to put in applications with my name as executive director for applications here in Phoenix. And we opened the first license in Phoenix um, in 2011. And 
I learned a ton. My parents were mortified. They're like, you're going to go sell illegal drugs. What are you talking about? Right. But through that two and a half year process, my mom worked there. My family all came to our events that we had, and they really changed their perspective on what it was through education. Having said that, I, my mother is still afraid of legalization efforts and pushing things forward and that sort of thing. And I think that there's some positive reasons for that. There's some good reasons for that as far as quality and safety not being accounted for in any of our regs and that sort of thing. But I also think that the more you understand the benefits of this product, like I said, I didn't have a background in cannabis. And within a week of opening our facility, I was sold beyond belief. I mean, hearing people move from other states that, you know, chronic PTSD, fibromyalgia, these things that are coming in that they're living here because they don't have to do something illegal anymore. And they're able Mm -hmm. to actually have a life and not be on pain pills. There's a tremendous amount of benefit from cannabis. And I, I think it's really about finding the voice mm-hmm. and and being very compassionate and understanding p- to people who don't understand right you you would never like slam a child down for not understanding something you take the time to teach them and what happens I, reactively i think in this industry is you see any negativity and it automatically becomes some kind of animosity and a fight right. between industry and people who are not supportive when the reality is that's your biggest opportunity for change. Well, the one thing everyone has in common is they want to improve their health or the health of their children. And yep. if you come at it from that angle, it seems like that might be, you know, find the commonality rather than butting heads of, yes. uh, in favor of a, a worldview that has been ingrained in our culture exactly. for so it's, long. It takes time too, yeah. right? You know, I mean, I spend a lot of time in my career trying to change the stigma around mental health. Mm-hmm. Right. And how can mental health parity be have parity with physical health and how can we get, you know, regulators and policymakers to understand that it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that they have to continually be to ex- exposed to the benefits of. They have to understand it. And you certainly can't come out it from an attack perspective. Right. The minute anybody feels attacked, the first response is to, to lock up and defense. Right. Yeah. Whereas we're not really doing anything as an industry to provide public education on the benefits of this. We do a lot within the industry. There's a hundred groups out there doing webcasts and videos and this and that, but we do very little on the public level to reach my little mom who doesn't know anything about this. Well, that's what, that's exactly what we're doing, and, which is why I'm here. We're broadcasting to communities that don't get a lot of exposure and that don't have a lot of education within their community about the benefits of cannabis and yet there's so many people out there who don't know about it who could actually benefit from Absolutely. it. You know, wean themselves off of opiates, for example, or, you know, care for a child with epilepsy or autism or, you know, any other condition like that. Just Absolutely. with something that you can buy on the Internet across state lines, CBD, for example, you know, it's regulated by the FDA now and has been for the last 10 years or so. I was going to so. say, it's been regulated by the yeah. FDA for a long time. And, and, um, and most people in states where cannabis is not legal, even for medical use, don't understand that they can actually go online and buy it and have it shipped across state lines to their home because it doesn't have, uh, if anything, traces of THC, but those don't even count, you know, in yep. that realm. So it's it's really interesting to me, and and those are the people who could really also benefit from knowing 
about it. Absolutely. And I, I always think of things, if you're trying to teach someone something, obviously you want them to participate and that's how they'll learn more, right? Mm-hmm. Teach a man to fish, blah, blah, blah. But the other thing is we talk within industry about THC, about CBD, you know, about CBN. The general public doesn't have a clue what that means. Right. So our conversations publicly facing that we're really trying to educate people need to be on such a basic level. Cannabis has two different constituents that are primary, right? Mm-hmm. Well, however you want to say that. But literally, and, and create similes and metaphors for things that they already understand like right. this so that we're speaking their language. Because part of the issue is that we're speaking our language mm-hmm. as an industry. Yeah. I, that's a very good point that you raised there. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the reasons that we're working with Dr. Donner and his group. He's got an amazing event coming up um, in April, on April 21st and 22nd, I believe, in Pennsylvania. Oh, awesome. It's a medical uh, business conference mm-hmm. called the World Medical Marijuana Business Conference and Expo. And they'll be offering CME credits, continuing medical education credits mm-hmm. for doctors. They're, it's accredited by AMA mm-hmm. for this. And I'm so excited about that particular conference because I think also the conversation has to originate from physicians as well. And you know, I would I'll, love to help spread that conference to my network of physicians that I've known for the last right. you know, 20 years. Yeah. Um, I, I know for a fact that many of them are very interested they are, as a physician, it's, it's not a comfortable feeling to have a patient come in and know more about something than you than do. You do. <laughs> and then a lot of times that patient has an agenda of write me a recommendation or give me my record so I can take them somewhere. I've had many, many calls from my past physicians saying, can you come teach me about this? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? How do I handle this? What about drug-drug interactions? And I think having something where it's CME-driven mm-hmm. will, just like any CME conference, will actually drive attendance. And I would be more than happy to reach out to my network of physicians as well as my connections networks of physicians in other states to help that. Great. Yeah, we would love that. We would love that because I think that the more, the more we get the medical community involved, and the standards are going to help big time, I yeah. think, because that, you know, right now, like I said, it's the Wild West. And I think that, um, as I've mentioned before, doctors are scientists. Absolutely. And they like to see the science. They like to understand, okay, there's a formula for this. Yep. <laughs> How does this work? What is this going to do? What are I, the indications? I think it's important to think, too, you know, it doesn't matter why someone is using cannabis, if it's recreationally or for a medical purpose. The last thing that we want to see is that person becoming sick because of cannabis, whether it's sicker and they already have a compromised immune system or they're a healthy individual using it recreationally and then they turn into a patient because the cannabis isn't safe, right? right? I mean, we can't yeah, have that. pesticides exactly. or that sort of, or the mold, yeah. Oh, the vape pens heating up plastic in your mouth that's not been tested and that kind of stuff. I mean, wow. there's so many potential areas for concern. Concern. Wow. Well, thank you for what you do because uh-huh. I, it's it's an amazing um, it's an amazing field. Um, creating standards it couldn't be easy, but you know it's it's so necessary, and I'm really excited to see the outcome of all the work that you're doing and 
I hope we stay in touch about it for sure. Oh, I'd love to. And thank yeah. you for all the kind words. I th- it is exciting. I absolutely love what I do. I never thought I would do it, but I couldn't be happier. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's quite brilliant. So anyway, on that note, I think it is time to close up the shop. I'm looking at our producer, Wendy West, right now, and she's giving me the heads up. It is time to close. So I want to personally say thank you to Leslie Engelking. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing your knowledge and insights. If you'd like to learn more about the work that she's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com and click broadcast to find today's episode. We will post information about Focus um, along with a link to their website. And also I will put a link to the article that we put up uh, today about the upcoming conference on the 28th of February in Pennsylvania if you want to get involved in the conversation about setting unified standards for the cannabis industry. I also want to say thank you so much to Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update. He will be back again next week. And thank you to our producer, Wendy West, and the team here at Worldwide Networks for making us shine. And of course, to our supporters, Hemp Meds and Pure CBD Zephyr Labs. We really appreciate your support, and we couldn't be doing this without you, so thank you so much. Last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. Tune in next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling, evergreen is always where I feel the blues do fall in. Pure CBD is a new and unique fresh tasting spray product which delivers an exact measured amount of the highest grade 100% pure cannabis oil. Each tube holds a 30-day supply, no smoke, no mess. Pure CBD from Zephyr Labs. 